That's a thing. Okay, so I want to start by asking a question, and I don't want anyone to raise their hands for this. So if there's anyone who like, has the urge to raise their hand, go ahead and do it now, just to get it out. Yeah, I know you, you guys are out there. So <laughs> my opening question is this. How many people here, and again, don't raise your hands, no hands. How many people, seriously, really? <laughs> That's how it's going to be. You guys are going to troll me the whole sermon. Uh, how many people here are still struggling with some sort of sin in your life? No, don't raise your hands. Come on, guys. <laughs> Jeez. Well, those of you who put your hands up deserve it. <laughs> Jeez. So if you, in your mind, would have put your hand up, but hopefully you didn't, and I'm sure that there's more people than just the two that jokingly put your hand up, if you would have put your hand up to the, the question, you're still struggling with sin, the, my follow-up question is this. What makes you think that God would want to use you if you're still struggling with sin? We're talking about empowered, and what makes you think that God wants to empower you if you're still struggling with sin? That's really the question, isn't it? That when we are struggling with sin, there's that little voice inside of us that says, oh, I'm still struggling with sin. I can't do this empowered thing. Like when we talk about uh, God and being moved in the Holy Spirit, it's almost like if I were to ask you, hey, let's do this thing. Let's be empowered. You'd say, if only you knew what I struggle with. If only you knew the sin that I'm dealing with, you wouldn't even ask because I'm not qualified for that. It's almost like you have to take a class or something, right? Where at the end, they, they give you a quiz, and if you can pass the, the sin-free quiz, then you can be empowered. Isn't that how it feels? Isn't there that little voice inside you? Whenever we talk about this, that, that, that kind of comes up. I want to speak to that this morning, because I wonder if not only is that voice not telling you the truth, I wonder if the opposite is actually true. And I wonder if not only is that, is that a lie, but maybe God uses this kind of thing all the time. And maybe if we would just be open to that, we might find that this empowered thing, uh, we could actually do it. It'll actually work. So that's kind of where we're headed. I think we have someone to pray. That's not me. Over here. Excellent. So go ahead and pray for me, because, you know, I need it. And uh, <laughs> go ahead and lift up another church as well. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, Kevin being willing to uh, share his thoughts this morning. Um, we ask that you give him uh, clarity of uh, presentation, uh, give him the right uh, organization, the words that come together uh, clearly to express um, your thoughts that he's going to share with us. Uh, we thank you for um, this wonderful country that we have where we can gather together here uh, relatively free of any kind of worries of imposition uh, and, and worship uh, as uh, we wish. This morning, uh, another church <clears throat> in a little town outside of Buffalo called Akron, New York, there's a free Methodist church that uh, built out of stone from back in the day. It's been there for a long time. We ask for you to be present in that church this morning. Amen. Amen. So before I continue, I'm going to adjust this a little bit because I don't like the angle I chose. How's that? I want to be able to see more of you at the time. Yeah, that's good, I think. Okay. So 
unfortunately, we have to talk about summer like it's over, right? right. <laughs> so one of the cool things I did this summer, uh, I did a lot of cool things this summer. One of them is Johanna and I and uh, the Mungers and my brother, we went to this convention, this gaming convention called PAX. And I love being a nerd. I'm happy to be a nerd. And I love talking about gaming and, and PAX. And if you don't know, PAX is a, uh, essentially, it's like a trade show for all things gaming. So it's tabletop games, video games, all that stuff. Pretty much Disneyland for people like me. Uh, I, I love it. If you, if you are a gamer, you should definitely go to PAX. It's in Seattle. Um, and so they have all these different booths, all this stuff you can go to, check out. Um, you get merchandise, you can play games that haven't been released, that kind of thing. And one of the booths that I found really interesting was from an organization called Game Church. Yes. <laughs> You've heard of it. <laughs> For the rest of the room who are looking at me as if I just spoke Spanish and you don't speak Spanish, uh, Game Church is, was created in Southern California and it was a group of gamers who they play games together, and then after they were done playing the game, they turned off the game and they sat around and talked about God. And they continually did that. It was just kind of their thing. And eventually, they started this organization, this movement, and they go to all these different gaming conventions, and they strike up conversations. They pass out different merchandise and books and T-shirts and that kind of stuff, and, and they build relationship with gamers and, and talk about how Jesus is applicable to the gamer. So one of the things I got from that I got this cool book, and I love it. Um, on the cover, it says, it's Jesus for the win, or Jesus FTW. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I don't know if you can see it, but it shows a picture of Jesus holding an Xbox controller. <laughs> yes. This is awesome. And then at the bottom, it gets a little cheesy, so I apologize. But it's, it says, a little book about a guy named Jesus, his guild, yeah, and his ultimate quest to save a land known as Earth. Right? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Some of you are no longer talking to me anymore, I have a feeling. <laughs> but yeah, so it's a little cheesy. And, and if you would be offended by this, know that this is not done in a, intended to be offensive. It's intended to be an outreach. Because you've got to talk like the kids are talking, right? Lulz. Um, so... <laughs> So one of the things in this book that I, that I love that I, was the reason I'm bringing this up is they summarize the Bible in 500 words. And it's, it uses some kind of gamery stuff, so some of it's a little cheesy, and I apologize for that. But I want to read it because it shows us something about who God is and how he interacts with his people and how his people interact with him. So here it is, the Bible in 500 words according to Game Church. Let's say the Bible is a 500 gigabyte hard drive. I know I've lost some of you already. <laughs> Stick with me, it gets better. The fragment of the Bible contained in this book, which is the Gospel of John, would only take up about 10 gigabytes. Don't get us wrong, it's a very important 10 gig, but the rest of the Bible is important too. Here's the ultra-compressed zip version. That's the, mostly the end of the nerd talk, so you could come back if, you lost, if I lost you. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and Adam and Eve, and the animals and everything else. Adam and Eve sinned, got kicked out of the Eden Resort and Spa, had kids, and became a bedtime story. Yeah. Cain and Abel were the first two kids. Cain killed Abel, leaving their brother Seth to carry things on. Seth had kids, and those kids had kids, and on and on the line until Noah. Noah built a boat, a fracking big boat. <laughs> hey, Battlestar Galactica fans out there? That's right. 
The world flooded. Everyone but Noah and his family died because they were stupid evil. More kids, more generations, and then Abraham is born. He's important. All the Jewish people descended from Abraham and his son Isaac. Isaac's grandson Joseph had a cool jacket. <laughs> and his brother's great-grandson Moses led the Jewish people out of Egypt, picked up the Ten Commandments, and headed back towards Israel. His intern, Joshua, takes over, gets them to the motherland, but the people keep being dumb. So God sends judges to get them on track. It works for a while, but the people keep being stupid. Enter King Saul. Dude gets stuff done. I'm not making this up. This is in this book. He unites the tribes and rules the battlefield. Dude is also dumb. God dumps him and slaps King David on the throne, but not before he breaks off cool moves like killing Goliath, throwing down with a lion, and going all gorilla on Saul. <laughs> Great description of King David. Dude is also dumb. <laughs> David's son Solomon isn't dumb. Well, not at the start. He's wise, rules the people justly, and then starts building temples to his wives' gods. So stupid. The kingdom splits in two, north and south, and after a while, those two halves fall apart and the Jews are exiled all over the place. They become homeless and wait for a savior, a Messiah to bring them back to glory to help them take their land back. They wait for Master Chief, which if you don't know is the main character in the Halo series, kind of a big deal. Instead, they get Jesus. They wanted a warrior. They got a sharp-tongued, intelligent carpenter born in a trough to a teenage mother shrouded in scandal. But he got the job done. There's a reason the first two-thirds of the Bible covers 4,000 years and the last third about 100. Jesus was kind of a big deal. He's what the Jewish people waited for all those years, and most of them didn't even realize it. Some of them kill him on a cross in a gruesome way you can't even imagine. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Rose from the dead. Gamers like that when you repeat it slowly with periods after each word. It is all capitalized, yes. Um, he hangs out with his disciples for a while longer before literally getting picked up and ascending to heaven. Those disciples were the start of the church. They were given the gift of the Holy Spirit and started to tell people about Jesus and what he had done and what he meant, which 2,000 years later we're still doing. Oh, and he's coming back. We don't know when, but it's going to happen. You can bet your sweet CPU it's going to happen. <laughs> so welcome to the, the story of my people. <laughs> so what I love about that, besides its being in gamery and, and a little silly, is it shows kind of what the Bible is about. Because it's a story about God and how God is doing all these things and moving through his people. And his people are constantly doing what this book would describe as, dude is dumb. Right? We're constantly, the history of the church, the history of the Jewish people is the history of people being really, really dumb and not following God. And so we, when we read this kind of thing, it shows us that our story and, our, and the people that we follow are not people who are constantly getting it right, but we're the people who need a savior. We need a Jesus to come and rescue us. See, the biggest difference between our worldview, our faith, this thing we call Christianity, and every other religion, worldview, philosophy, 
The biggest difference between the two is that ours is the only one where we don't try to get back to God. God does all the work for us. Every other worldview religion, we have to be good enough, we have to strive, we have to lean forward, and hopefully if we're good enough that God will show up. But in ours, it's the, it's the opposite. God shows up first. So we've been in this Empowered series, which we have the cool slide. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. That's Kurt really likes that, and I do too, but I just thought I'd emphasize it for a minute. That's cool. So <laughs> we're in our Empowered series, and we've been looking through the Gospel of Luke. And interestingly, I was not intending on preaching through Luke. I was intending on doing whatever I wanted. But it turns out uh, where God brought us is Luke. So Luke chapter 5 is where we're at. Uh, and it should be on the screen next. I don't have a clicker today, so I'm kind of reliant on verbal cues to give the guy in the back what's going on. So here's Luke 5. After this, which something happened before this part, not important to the story. It is important, though. You should read it. Um, <laughs> after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So you have these two groups of people at play, and you have Jesus kind of stuck in the middle in between them. On one side, you have the Pharisees. And these guys are the teachers of the law. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've been a part of a church, you probably have the perception of the Pharisees that they're like the evil bad guy, right? They're like the antagonist. The, if only the Pharisees weren't in play, then Jesus can finally do what he wants, right? And while they are the antagonist to Jesus in a lot of his stories, I don't think they're as evil as we think of them. Because when we read the history of the church, we read about a people who were constantly getting it wrong and ended up in exile. And the Old Testament prophets were really clear about why they were going into exile. It was because they lost God. They stopped caring about God. And so they ended up in exile. And the, the Old Testament ends right as they come back into the promised land. And it doesn't seem to look good for them when they first come back in the land. It's kind of this, well, let's see if we follow God this time. Let's see if we get it right. And there's a, a, a history, wow, I said that sentence wrong, history in between the two testaments, the Old and New Testament, called the 400 silent years, um, which historically is when there were no prophets prophesying in Israel. And Israel kind of got caught in the middle of two superpowers and were constantly on the wrong side of war. So they're getting beaten and destroyed and their cities burned down and, and all this atrocity happening to Israel. And the Pharisees believed that this was because they weren't following God. And there's actually some truth to that, right? We have this whole Old Testament prophets that, that are, are communicating this idea that if you would follow God, you wouldn't have bad things happen to you. So, but the Pharisees said, ah, it's not because, just because we miss God, it's because we weren't following God's law. So I have this illustration of, it's fun. Everyone likes bubble wrap, right? You don't, if you want a piece of bubble wrap, come see me afterwards, but I don't want you popping it while, while I'm doing my thing. So this is God's law, which is a light bulb. Um, insert metaphor about the light of the world here, but not where I'm going with this. So if this is God's law, the Pharisee says, we need to try really hard not to break this law. 
Because this is God's law, and if we break this law, then we're going to end up in exile again, and that's bad. And so they say, ah, here's what we'll do. We'll create another law that will wrap around the law, so that if we break this law, at least we haven't broken God's law. And then they're like, well, that's still a little too close. If we, if we break this one, we still could break God's law. So let's make another law that wraps around that. So that way, if we break that one, well, at least we didn't break the other law. So at least we didn't break God's law. So we're still okay. Eh, it's still a little too close. So let's, let's make another law to wrap around that law, to go around that law, around that law. So if we break the law, well, at least we don't break the law, and then the law of the law. And if we broke that one, well, at least it's not God's law, right? So at this point, we have this thing. Is this a light bulb? <laughs> doesn't really look much like a light bulb. But at least I didn't break God's law, right? So you see how the Pharisees' line of reasoning, they're the only ones in Israel that are really trying hard to get it right at the time. But do you see how this line of, of reasoning, if you take it all the way through, it always leads to condemnation. It always leads to judgmentalism. And it always leads to never being good enough. Because after all, how are you supposed to follow all that? Law after law after law, this lawception, if you will. It's just too much. So the Pharisees, at least they were trying. At least they were doing something. But the, the one group who tried to get it right got it so, so wrong. And they took something so beautiful and wonderful that this relationship with God, and they made it just like every other religion and worldview, a thing that separates this unique thing called Christianity from every other worldview. So that's the Pharisees. On the other side, you have the tax collectors and the sinners. And tax collectors are, if you have in your mind the idea of a used car salesman, now, I have friends who use car salesmen, so there's nothing wrong with that profession. But you know the stereotype that we think of? Or the caricature of a used car salesman, the kind of slimy gross who just after my money and whatever it takes for a deal? Uh, that's how the tax collectors were thought of. Because uh, in the first century, we talked about how Israel is kind of caught in all these wars. Well, near the end, right before the New Testament begins, Rome takes over most of the world. And when Rome takes over, they make every other nation their slave. So in the first century here in Jesus' time, the nation of Israel is not a free nation. They are slaves to Rome. Jesus and his people are slaves. And the Pharisees are slaves. All Israel. So the tax collectors are working for Rome to collect money from their own people, from the Israelite people, to give back to Rome. And if that wasn't bad enough, anything extra they, they were able to get, they got to keep. So not only are they working for the slave owner to exploit the slave, which is also their people, but they're also using that Roman authority saying, oh yeah, I told you it was 10 bucks, today it's 20. Sorry, my price just went up. And so they're lining their pockets with this exploitation, essentially. And that's a tax collector. So how, how great do you think they were? How popular were they? <laughs> right? They were the party you wanted to go to, right? And then you have the sinner. And 
when we think of, when we read sinner, a lot of us think like, oh, it's like people like us, people who are trying to follow God, but they just don't get it right, so they're sinners, right? They keep breaking the law, and so they're sinners. But when the Pharisees use the term sinner, what they're probably describing is not only someone who's not following God's law, but they're describing someone who is so proud of the fact that they don't follow God's law that they're going to flaunt it in your face of, man, we're so cool, we don't even care about God's law. This is awesome. So they're not struggling with sin. They don't even care that they're sinning. And that's the sinner. And it's these terrible people that Jesus is choosing to spend his time with. And Jesus is criticized for this. And the next verse that comes up, Jesus answers them that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So it's not the people who are trying really hard to be good enough for God that Jesus is coming to and spending his time with. It's the broken, the sinner, the tax collector that Jesus is spending his time with. And that should tell us something really important about who God is is after. The really interesting thing about these two groups is not only that they historically were there and Jesus was interacting with them, but these two groups also are kind of people, they're kind of two parts of us, aren't they? Because on one side in me, there's this broken person who's a sinner. A part, if I'm really honest, there's a part of me who is actually kind of a little rebellious and is like, haha, I'm not following God, what now? And then I react to that and say, well, I'm not going to be empowered if I have that attitude, so I better try and be good enough. I better try harder. I better do the right stuff. And then I become like a Pharisee, except instead of being judgmental to all of you, I'm judgmental to myself. And ah, I'm just not good enough. Ah, I keep breaking the law. Ah, why would Jesus want to hang out with me? I'm a, like a tax collector. I'm a sinner. And so these two groups of people, Jesus is going right in the middle of, but this is kind of us where we live, isn't it? And by Jesus coming to this tax collectors and sinners, it's like he's saying, I'm not waiting for you to get it together. That voice inside of you that is telling you that you're not good enough, that you can't be empowered because you're struggling with sin, is going to grab onto that last part of the verse where, where Jesus is saying, um, I've not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that voice is going to tell you, see, you have to repent first. You're not good enough for Jesus to come. You've got to repent. He's come to call sinners to repentance. Have you repented? No? Sorry, you're out of luck. But where is Jesus when he's saying that? Is he outside the building like, you guys repent and then I'll be right there. Get someone to bring me a drink. Like, he's in there partying with them. He's building relationship with these people before they've repented. The repentance is the end game, so don't mishear me that God doesn't care about sin, God doesn't care about repentance. That's not what I'm saying. But he doesn't wait for the relationship to start until you've cleaned up your act. Right. He's building the relationship first. So when we talk about being empowered, it's not about doing the right stuff and getting closer to God. It's about Jesus getting closer to you first and empowering you. So one of my life verses is in Galatians chapter 5. And I don't know how most people pick life verses. 
I don't, it's, I didn't sit down and like, I should pick a life verse that represents my life and everything about it. Cool, here's a life verse. It's just kind of a verse that God keeps bringing to me and he keeps bringing back to me and, and all throughout the thread of my faith, my relationship with God, I always keep kind of coming back to this verse. Did it already pop it up on the screen? No, okay, good. So this is my life verse and I think it's going to be really helpful to show us something about being empowered and trying to be good enough for God. In Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, it says, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I know what you're thinking. Great life verse, Kevin. <laughs> Nailed the heart of God there. It goes on. So part two, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So you have this obvious compare and contrast here, right? You have two lists. One of them is the bad list that you should really seek to avoid doing if you want to follow God. And then the other is the good list. That naturally we go, okay, so I got it. So if I want to be empowered, I just have to avoid the first list. I have to do the second list, and then I'm golden, right? There's an interesting choice of words here that, that Paul, the writer of Galatians, uses that kind of messes with that. And that's at the beginning of, the, of the, the phrase, the acts of the flesh are obvious. And that's compared to the fruit of the Spirit. Why would he mix his metaphors? That's bad writing, really. Because the acts of the flesh, when you say it like that, it takes it out of you as who you are. See, because if you're here and you have a relationship with God, if, if Jesus is, is the Lord of your life and you're trying to follow after him, you're not the same person you were before. He's literally transformed you into a new person. That old sinful creature you were is dead. You are a new person now. So before, you may have said, that's just who I am. I'm sexually immoral. I'm impure. Debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. Yeah, that's, that's just who I am. I can't help it. And maybe that was true of you then. But now that you're a new creation, that's not who you are. That's not your identity. You're not the jealous guy, right? You're simply a person who does sin, who does acts of flesh. But it's not who you are. You don't own it, and it doesn't own you. Meanwhile, so that's not who you are. Okay, so who I am just means I have to be a loving, joyful, peaceful, forbearing person, right? But the, cho the choice of words he goes with is fruit of the Spirit. And in the Christian church, I think we use that phrase, fruit of the Spirit, so often that I wonder if it's lost some of its meaning. Because think of fruit for a minute. If it, if it comes from a tree, or it comes from a, anything, but I'm going to use a tree as an example. If it comes from a tree, how hard does that tree have to work to produce fruit? 
if you own the tree, you say, I have to do a lot of work. I have to make sure the soil's right. I have to water it, but I have to make sure I don't overwater it. But I can't underwater it either. There's kind of a sweet spot of water. And then I have to make sure there's sun, but not too much sun. But if it doesn't get enough sun, then it's going to die. And I have to make sure there's no weeds around it. I have to, there's a lot of work that goes into making that tree a tree. But if you're the tree, how much work do you have to do to make fruit? Really, if the conditions are right, it doesn't really work hard at all, does it? It just kind of makes fruit. If the conditions are right, it's just a natural thing that the tree does is just make fruit. It's just the natural consequence. And that's really interesting because while the Pharisee in us that wants to be good enough to be empowered would look at that list and say, that's my to-do list before I can be empowered, the idea of the fruit of the Spirit might suggest that it's the other way around. Because the Holy Spirit makes you a new creation, and then it will lead and guide you. That's called being empowered. As a result of that, so the empowered is coming first. As a result of that, you're producing fruit. So you see how we have this all backwards? We've been trying to produce the fruit first so we can become empowered, when God is trying to do exactly the opposite. He's trying to get us to be empowered so that way we can have the fruit. That way we can be a more loving, joyful person. I want to bring someone up. Can I, bring, can I borrow you? I should have asked you in advance. <laughs> so I have a friend. You're my friend now. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry, I don't actually know. Are you married? Yeah. You're now married if you aren't already. <laughs> so my friend comes up to me, and he's struggling with sin. His marriage is having a hard time. Sorry. Uh, really is a touch from God. It needs me to be empowered and move in the Holy Spirit and have a word from him. But I just got done sinning. As if you know me, you know, when I sin, I go all the way. I sin a lot. So I'm not really feeling up to giving him a word right now because who am I? I just sinned. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy of this. But maybe I just got done reading Galatians and went, okay, fruit of the Spirit. Maybe I should just try it out. So I pray for him, and God actually believe it or not, for some reason, decides to empower me and moves through me and gives him a word, right? So now his marriage is great. Congratulations, your marriage is great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you, can get, you can sit down, I'll thank you. <laughs> so I prayed for him, now his marriage is awesome. Now his, he's no longer sick, he's now healed. Whatever he needed has happened, right? So God's worked a miracle through me, and now he's doing great. So from his perspective, and the way we normally think of it is awesome, cool, God did something for him, God loves him. He's all taken care of. Great. But what do you think that does to me? Me who just got done sinning, that is, took this chance and God happened to use me. Do you think that would make me want to be more intimate with God? Don't you think that would take me to a different place where I'd say, wow, God is so amazing. I just want to spend more time with him. I just want to fall, be closer to him. I want to fall more in love with him. And so by being empowered and by having God move through me, it actually, it's going to make me want to sin less. It's going to make me struggle less. See, we have the, the ends and the means confused. This whole time, we've been thinking if we would just do the fruit, that's the, that's the means to the end, which is being empowered. But when the reality is, if we would just be empowered, that's the means. The end is the fruit. Sometimes God is going to move through you 
even when you're struggling, because you are struggling, because it will help you in your struggle. And when you're empowered by God, you're not trying hard to do this fruit stuff. When you're empowered by God, it just kind of happens naturally. It's just like you're a tree making fruit. The conditions are right, and so you're just producing fruit. So when Kirk called me about a month ago to ask me if I would preach a sermon, a month ago, I was in a place, we had taken the summer, and um, I just started working for my dad. And so we're essentially trying to start a business with my dad. And so I've been working on that. Plus, Johanna and I are trying to start a business, so we're starting that. Plus, I still work full-time, because I still have to make money while I'm starting these businesses. Plus, Johanna and I have been doing marriage counseling and, and getting our marriage to a place where it's good. And it's great, by the way. Uh, <laughs> before anyone comes up out to Johanna, I'm so sorry <laughs> that you're married to him. Uh, our marriage is going great, but we're still working on that. So we're, our marriage, we're still putting a lot of time and energy into that. Plus, it was summer. So we did, like, vacations, relaxing. You know, that's a thing that you should do every now and then. So I essentially took the entire summer off. And when Kirk called me and asked me if I would preach, in that moment I went, wow, I guess I haven't spent any time with God really at all this summer. That's kind of a problem. <laughs> and so I, told, I said, Kurt, I can't. I'm not in a good place with God. I'm not sinning. Well, I probably am sinning, but I'm not like, I, I didn't do this like big terrible sin and now I'm backslidden. Like I wouldn't go that far. It's just, it just kind of slipped away from me. That intimacy with God is, is, now that I can see, it's kind of drifted off. And Lake Sam deserves better than a sermon from someone who is not hearing God. If you're going to sit here and preach, you better hear from God, right? So I told him no, and we hung up, and he said, okay, I guess I'll have to find someone else. And in that moment, I felt like God was doing something. And so the next day I said, I need to make it a point and get back on track with God. So I, the next day I, I came to his presence and I read, opened his word and I started reading Luke 14, which I think I have it up. Oh, I forgot to mention, there's the tree. That's kind of cool, right? All right, you can go to the next. Do I have the next one? Yeah, I do. Okay, good. So Luke 14, God led me to this, where he said, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. In other words, I'm working. I'm too busy. Sorry. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. In other words, I just got a new toy. I want to play with it. I just got a new game. I got to check it out. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. In other words, I got this relationship, man. Sorry. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out on the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of these who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So I read that story, and it's the first time I've ever read scripture since I've been a Christian where I related to the negative character of the story. 
where I was like, oh, I'm not the guy who's led in the banquet. I'm the guy who RSVP'd, and then when he called me to go, I said, no, I'm too busy, I can't make it. And in that moment, I felt like God was lovingly and gently saying, come back to my table. Come on back. Welcome back. There's still a place for you. And so this morning when I talk about not waiting to be good enough, not letting that voice inside you win before being empowered, it's not an idea that I came up with and was like, hey, Kurt, this would be great. We sh I should come up with this. But this is actually what is flowing through my life right now, like this second. Hopefully, by the end of this morning, you'd say that what I'm doing up here is being empowered, hopefully. And if that's true, and I'm going to assume it is because I feel like that's what's true, it's, it's not that I got to a point where I'm good enough. Okay, now I'm good enough. Now I can preach a sermon at Lake Sam. It was, here I am, I'm empowered. And by starting that process of being empowered, it's brought me to a level of intimacy with God. It's brought me back. And it's brought me to a place that I've never really been before. This, it, it's just a sweet, intimate time with God that I haven't had in quite some time. And so this morning, my encouragement for you is if there's that voice that's telling you you're not good enough to be empowered, let's call that what it is. It's a lie. It's a lie you've come to believe about yourself. Let's not wait till we're good enough to be empowered. Let's be empowered first, and we'll find that the fruit will come naturally. He wants to move you in power in order to get you back to a place of intimacy with him. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you're not waiting for us to get it right. Thank you that that voice inside that tells us that we're not good enough, that tells us that we need to make laws on laws on laws to not break your law is a lie. God, I'm so grateful that you didn't wait for us to get it right before you encountered us. And you don't want to wait for us to get it right until you empower us. And so this morning, anyone here who feels like they can't enter your presence because if you only knew what I had gone through, then you wouldn't even question it. You would know I'm not good enough. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to their heart this morning. God, would you move in power in this place? Would you empower us to do what you've called us to do? God, would you show us how naturally that fruit of the Spirit comes when we just be empowered? Lord, we don't want to be a Pharisee. We also don't want to be a tax collector and a sinner. We want to be a fully devoted, intimate follower of you, God. So this morning, if you reach in front of you, you have our communion. And you know, we're not good enough. We are keep messing up. And we're going to continue to keep messing up. But when Jesus came, he said, this is my body. And if you stick your finger in that, you can crush it. Because Jesus says, my body was crushed for you. So that way you could be empowered. So let's go ahead and take this as Jesus' body.
And in your other cup is the juice. And Jesus said, this is my blood that was shed for you. And this morning, before we take this, go ahead and ask yourself, if you, if you would have put your hand up at the beginning of my sermon to say, yes, I'm still struggling with sin and I'm not good enough, would you just take a minute with this cup and say, Jesus, your, your blood was shed so that way I didn't have to. I didn't have to wait. And that sin that you're constantly wrestling with, this covers that. So go ahead and take this 